From face-to-face training to blended training techniques, the DOT Consulting delivers distinct advantage for organizations looking to grow. We help you invest in technology knowledge through training, experimental learning, and community connections. Employees create an overall collective sharpness, savviness, and greater productivity using technology as a tool, thus increasing the technological speed and quality of the expertise in your organization. The DOT Consulting, a new level of tech savvy. Visit the dot consulting dot co. Welcome to Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. This is an education-based show focusing on tech careers and how to incorporate the important aspects of technology in your current work. Each show brings you closer to tech success. Now, here's your host, Dr. Sharon Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Coding the Future. I am honored that you have chosen to spend an hour with us this week, and you will not be disappointed this week. This show is an education-based show to give information and action tips to working adults. Our goal is to provide action items that you can use to leverage your own skill set in finding your tech genius. You know, Finding a career in technology is not as hard as you think, and actually using technology to help elevate your career is also not as hard as you think, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Jones. I'm an educator, a technologist, entrepreneur, mom of two crazy boys, lover of all things coffee and wine, an avid list maker, and a lifelong learner, and I am so glad that you have joined us here today on Coding the Future. If you like what you've been hearing, please go to our website on the Voice America Network and choose Coding the Future and subscribe to our show. You can also find us on all of the podcast apps under Coding the Future. And I would love to have you leave a review and tell us what you think or reach out to us at hello at the dot consulting dot co and ask to be a part of the show. You know, I love having guests. I love furthering our conversations around how technology inspires and is innovating the next level of technological revolution that's going to come this way. Well, today, everybody, you all have already heard her a little bit on my uh, combination of women in the field of technology, but I couldn't get enough and I needed to know more about her life and what she has brought to the field of technology and to women in engineering and computer science. So today I am bringing back Dr. Susanna Stoika, who has an, um, her history, I actually can't even do justice to the bio. She is from Romania originally, but has moved to Israel and Canada and the United States. And in each of the countries has made an impact in the field of computer technology and computer science. So I'm going to let her tell her story because I do not do it the way it should be. But uh, Dr. Stoika, thank you so much for being back with us today. And I can't wait to dig into more. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, So you want me to tell you about my profession? Yes, I'd love for you to start telling us again. uh, Tell me a little bit about where it all began in Romania and take us on that journey. It all all began actually with uh, me competing with my father, who was a very handy man, and he was able to repair everything in the house. And that was very interesting for me. So I would always tag along and watch him how he was doing repairs. And then uh, one day he found me when I was uh, 10 or 11, standing on a chair, changing fuses. And uh, in those times, the fuses weren't like what we have today. We had some uh, 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 fuses which had uh, wires inside. And when they burned, because I was uh, soon after the war, we couldn't buy new fuses. So what we did, we took out wires from the multiviral wires and put one or two or three uh, regenerating the fuse, basically. So I, he found me work, working away happily because I counted very carefully the number of wires he put in before it burned. 
And uh, he told me, uh, when he saw me, he said, I told you not to touch it. And I said, I was very careful, Dad. I was very careful. (laughs) (laughs) He said, okay, uh, go to the kitchen, take a towel, put some water on it, and put it under your right foot. And he said, I don't touch it to the left one. Okay. And now uh, put your hand on the wire with your right hand, not your left hand. And of course, I got zapped. And he said, now you have respect for electricity. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And uh, he said, the reason I I was very adamant about uh, right hand, right foot, because otherwise you would have had it through your heart, and that's not healthy. So that was my introduction to electricity. Uh, of course, my competition continued. And by 12 years of age, he said, oh, okay, I am giving up all the repairs in the house. You do them. And uh, I wanted originally to be a pilot. Then I found out that pi- women don't become pilots in that time. Uh, then I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. And he took me to a research facility and I found out that uh, people at that time, at least, couldn't have kids once they started working there. So that was out of the uh, counting. Then I was uh, vacillating between being a doctor and an engineer. Uh, I had this impulse to help people. And uh, but then a cousin convinced me that uh, I don't want to be a doctor because if I want to be a doctor, I will have to go through cutting up cadavers. <laughs> so that was mm-hmm. it. And so by 12 years of age, I was uh, firmly set on my way to become an engineer. And I um, became an in- uh, I signed up originally to become an automation engineer, but I was the first group of people who were selected, just a few of us, to have additional courses and become the first promotioner of computer engineers. And I was really lucky in my profession because I ended up working on the first uh, commercial Romanian computer, which was uh, absolutely amazing. And uh, then I came, I uh, emigrated to Israel and there I worked on a project which was uh, installation of computer control traffic system in downtown Tel Aviv. And from there I emigrated to Canada and uh, I worked for an American company uh, designing uh, computers. And with that company, I ended up developing the next generation of computer technology, which was integrated technology, which is those big chips. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very, very interesting. I ended up uh, doing a a number of inventions and I worked on an expert system, which basically is dumping my knowledge into program, a software program that ends up thinking like an expert. And uh, so something like machine learning that we would hear about now, yeah. which we know has been around for a while, but that's it. Yeah. So basically I put in, I, we didn't have enough people who were qualified to design those big, uh, test those big chips. And I had a uh, knowledge, uh, I was able to improve the testability on a chip uh, as an expert in three weeks, which is a long time. But people who didn't, uh, weren't at my level, usually it took at least three months. And uh, the tool was able to do it in five to 15 minutes. Wow. So it was really an interesting, I, wa- I had a whole group of people who I worked with uh, who are experts in designing the software part of it, I provided the knowledge. I actually engineered my own brain, brain so to speak. Uh, so I was very uh, lucky. I, it was a fantastic experience. And then I ended up, because the company ran into problems and eventually disappeared, I ended up uh, working in... Uh, defining a design and test strategy for vehicle electronics. So all the electronics which you can see in a car. 
And that was an interesting experience because it was uh, before I joined the company, I would, uh, they would just hope that everything comes together and everything works. Uh, and I, I was able to develop a strategy, which uh, test strategy, which was the, designing in a way that by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's uh, good by uh, design. So that was a very interesting experience too. So I was really lucky in my career as an engineer. So let me ask this question. So you start in Romania, you work on building the first computer in Romania, which is incredible. Can you give us an estimate? What year was that? That was in uh, 69, uh, 69, 70, 71, 72. So in comparison to what was happening in the United States, where was Romania in that development phase? Were you comparable? Did you feel, did you know what was happening in the U.S. at that time? No. Okay. No, we had no idea. Actually, um, in um, Romania, being a communist country, we were very secretive. So uh, we were, uh, our boss has to be, had to be the last person to leave the place and have everything under key before we left. And I had no idea. Uh, we, we kind of got the technology to build the computer under, in a very complicated way. And I, I thought we were so backward. My biggest shock was coming to North America and finding out that we, are, we were at par. Yeah. So we were, we were designing the same uh, level of computers. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm curious to know at that time in the 60s, in like 69, 70, 71, were you, when you were designing the computer, can you give us an image? Like, it's not like a personal computer you were designing at that point. It was a pretty large, or was it a personal computer? No, yeah, yeah. people didn't even dream about personal computers. The computers were like a cupboard uh, size yeah. something, and they had the wiring that uh, good luck if you if to find out why it didn't work right because uh, the wiring was very thick. So, so, and then, so you're building something and then at the end, what would the use of this computer be? I mean, what was the use going to be? Uh, we, uh, computers were used in a variety uh, of areas. It was used for calculations, normal mm -hmm. calculation. At that time, they used COBOL language. Uh, and also for uh, controlling the power distribution systems. Gotcha. Okay. I'll just kind of give a little bit of perspective and think, you know, when we think about a computer, we often immediately go to a personal computer because that's what we're used to now. But when they first were being developed, most of them were huge. They were size of rooms and they were used for calculations and for power grids and for um, a lot of our banks still use some of the biggest computers out there in order to, to create do their calculations. So then what took you from Romania to Israel? How did you immigrate from uh, Romania, which is, a like you said, a communist country? How did you make that switch over to Israel? Uh, my husband defected. He was, uh, he was mm. studying in, uh, he was given a scholarship to study marketing in England. And uh, as we joked about it, uh, he forgot the way back. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, because he wanted to do the minimum uh, damage for the family we left behind because you, I could have gotten in a lot of trouble. I got into some, but uh, not as bad. Um, he went to Israel. I am Jewish. Uh, and so he figured that that would be, and he, was, he is also. So he figured that would be the cleanest way to defect. And it took us two and a half years to get back together. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was, we counted on three to six months, but the Romanian government had, had other plans. Um, I uh, fought every way I could from Romania to get out, but uh, they wouldn't let me go. And there 
reasoning was that I was a PhD and I had the PhD in the field of uh, designing computer with the most advanced technology at that time. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't let me go. Finally, with American pressure, uh, they let me go. Uh, I became part of a list of people they had to let go in order for Romania to get the most favored nations clause. Wow. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't let me go. And uh, so that's how I got to Israel. And from Israel, I, uh, because my parents were still in Romania, I was considered a um, security risk. So I couldn't get into real computer design. I could get into the use of computers, but not in uh, the places where it was computer design because all of them were military places. So I realized I wasn't able to do my professions uh, at the level I wanted to. So uh, we ended up in Canada. And uh, there I was able to be hired by a company um, which doesn't exist anymore, which was fantastic for engineers. It was an engineer-focused company, uh, Control Data Corporation. And they were groundbreakers in the computer technology for years. And then, the, unfortunately, the people who started the company did not recognize the, import the importance of integrated technology and what it means for uh, computer architecture. And because of that, the, com mm. the company slowly went uh, away. And so when you say computer architecture, what are you how are you defining that? Uh, how, how a computer logic is put together. So uh, they didn't realize uh, and uh, they were left behind, basically. In spite of the fact that they were at the very beginning of the integrated technologies, they were at least two years ahead of anyone else in the industry. They had uh, a, a place to fabricate even the chips, the computer chips. And uh, they had, when they went down, uh, they had supercomputer, uh, an area which was building supercomputers. They had the best military computers in the industry, the safest, very reliable hardware, uh, uh, the best uh, disk drives in the industry, um, the big disk drives. And they slowly, slowly had to, to sell all, all the pieces because I, they didn't recognize the importance of the new technology. I wonder why that is, because they were so innovative in what they were designing, disk drives and the, hard, the hardware piece, that chip. Man, a computer chip just changed the way in which we interacted with technology. They couldn't, uh, they were so fixated on the old, th they were too successful with the previous technology. Ah, the computer, uh, the previous computer architecture was a standard. It was taught in universities. It was, so they were a victim of their previous success and they couldn't, uh, the management became older by that time and couldn't wrap their mind around the importance of the new technology and switching. That can so, happen all too often where, yeah. and, and I think that happens that has happened now with companies if they're not forward thinking about what is going to come next or how can they keep inventing? Yeah, they have to reinvent. Every company has to do that. They have to immediately look in the future to develop. Actually, uh, successful companies have a research part that continuously produces new technologies. That's the only way to survive. You can, usually they have uh, at least two generations of technologies on top of the current one. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's that research and development part is where you're continuing to grow and change. Failing forward, I often call it failing forward, where you're trying something new, you have an idea, and you're putting it out there to see if it's possible to even create a solution. Yeah, and you have to basically redefine the market if you really yeah. want to be successful. 
So you need some very inventive people and then you need, that's the research part, and then you need people who have the feet on the ground, so to speak, to transform the technology from an idea, something that is one of a kind, to mm-hmm. something that can be replicated at a, at a reasonable cost. What do you think has been the most pivotal piece of technology that's been developed over the past 40 years that you see has really changed the way we interact with tech, the way it's changed our general communication? I think the integrated technology was definitely. And when you say integrated technology, define that. What do you mean by that? She's showing me a really cool piece of technology but okay that's go ahead, something i worked on this is what you see when you look at the computer board this is what is inside all right until it's a chip and on the yeah, inside a is a little with the, with the legs you see uh-huh the connections so that's what the, the piece that is inside uh is what you con- you this this was only six thousand gates uh six thousand uh logic gates in it. That's why it's uh, VLSI 6000, very large scale integration, 6000. This was the beginning. And uh, since then, it's a lot more on uh, on the different chips. And uh, today the design of uh, computers actually happens at foundries. It's no, there are no longer computer companies that design it because uh, the basis is uh, pushing more and more and more and more logic into one chip. So the computer companies just define how to interconnect those chips. That's okay. So that's what I was trying, that's where I was getting to is the way in which you are able to take the different components of the computer and integrate them together to make a more seamless use of what you're interacting with. That's that's really what Susanna is saying is that she began with that research many years ago and now it's become more and more sophisticated. And the more we integrate the chips together, the more sophistication you have in your piece of technology. So that technology basically becomes faster and faster and faster as uh, technology is developed and we are able to make uh, these components smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Hence our cell phones and our iPods and all those kinds of things. That that, uh, uh, cell phone has more uh, memory in it than I had in my first computer. (laughs) That's nuts. I mean, and, and, you know, you just think about, so I use the example, and I've said this before, and I'm, I'm curious to know what you think, but in 2008, I remember when the iPod came out. And the transformation of going from a Walkman to a, an iPod, right? Or mini CD disc player or whatever that was. And I also remember the flip, well, the bag phone that went to, you know, the, the more portable phone, or what you call it, the flip phone. And then there was the flip phone got smaller and then you had the slider phone. But in particular, that transition, I felt like the iPod really transformed the way we held technology in our hands. I'm curious, do, do you agree with that? I, because I just feel like after that came out, the trajectory of how fast in which we have been able to manipulate and integrate technologies has just been exponential compared to where we were before. Or, I mean, at least it's been exponential at the consumer level. I know that there has been development for years on on a corporate and government and, you know, more uh, – in, in those areas versus on the consumer level. But that to me was really transformational for, I began to see my students become less and less uh, dependent on the desktop computer. Um, yeah. We didn't even have that many laptops at that time. But um, what, what do you think? I think that uh, the shift on how we saw technology. It was, uh, it was, the first time you, you could hold a piece of technology in your hand, mm-hmm. independent of being wired to a wall. Yes, the tethering my, where you had to... My, my biggest uh, shock was as a design, computer design engineer uh, was when in 1985, 
I was able to build in my basement in a, into a two-drawer filing cabinet, metal filing cabinet, a whole computer, which has more memories than the first computer I worked on. Wow. And uh, basically, it ran, uh, the first computer I worked on ha- needed cards, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, to be programmed. This was, not, didn't even need the cards. Yeah, you could program it directly. And I was and that was exciting, to- I know, because the cards were a pain. You had to stick the card in and they had to get the right alignment. The whole right. cards, yeah, which came from uh, the textile industry. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, uh, I have people that talk about the, like, just the craziness of getting that to work. Uh, and if somebody tripped you and you dropped the cards, good luck to put it back. Till, till somebody was smart enough to figure out if you drew on top of the cards uh, uh, a diagonal line, then it was much easier to put them back because uh, the <laughs> line would show you where the cards went. But that was one trick to get to computer time, trip the guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Because computer time was at the premium. So that was huge when you were able to create something where you didn't use the cards that you could program right within the computer itself. Yeah, Exactly. And, uh, and imagine that it was in my own basement. <laughs> yeah, and that's incredible. The shock was that I built it one year. I figured that uh, in 1985, and I, I built it because I, you had these chips, and I knew that these chips would be the future. So it was a Z80, if you remember, that I used. So I needed to learn, and that was the fastest way to learn by building the computer in my own basement. The name of the computer was Erasmus. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, so all of this development, all of the way in which you've been able to forge the path in computer science, I mean, in being a part of all of this innovation over the past, you know, your career, and then even stepping forth and forging the path for women, because I am sure that there were probably not as many of you in the room as there were men. You now have, well, let me ask you this question. What is one piece of advice you would offer to a young woman who is interested in pursuing something in computer science or computer engineering? In any engineering, you can do it. Um, it's not impossible. Don't listen to the naysayers because, unfortunately, uh, even today when uh, the path for women is open to study engineering, there are naysayers who say, oh, the life of an engineer is too dirty, too difficult, uh, the hours are too long, uh, you can't make it as a woman, you don't have a work-life balance. I can tell you, you can have work-life balance. You can do it if you really want to. If you love the profession, you will find a way to do it. Uh, In the beginning of my profession, I was working full-time, doing a PhD, and having a baby at home. And I was able to do it because I loved it. I was uh, studying for my PhD after people went, everybody went to sleep. Um, It takes effort. It's not easy, but you can do it. And the most important thing is to love your profession because you are going to spend with your profession the same amount of waking time as you are spending with your family. Yes. And it's so important to to like it. If you don't like it, get out of it. Don't go to engineering only because that sounds nice. I can't agree more. You know, when you follow your passion, you know, people often say you won't work a day in your life, but, you know, I think there's a wonderful combination of being able to live your passion that propels work, that propels um, mission and purpose. And I completely agree with you. If you want to do it, you can do it. You know, when you mentioned that you were working on your PhD, you were working full time and you had a baby at home, I actually can empathize with that uh, my myself I was not, I didn't have a baby yet, but I was working on my PhD and working full-time teaching. 
And then I became pregnant with my first son right as I was getting ready to defend. So I was three months pregnant defending. And then I was six months pregnant when I walked across the stage. So I tell this to Ethan often that you've already been across the stage once because <laughs> you were in my belly. But I knew, but I, it was hard. It wasn't easy. And people often ask me, how do you do it? And I said, you know, I love what I do. I love everything about learning and education and empowering people with the skills they need to use technology to power their career. Because it's, I mean, you've seen it develop, you know what it can do to help make your life easier and enhance it. And there's so many amazing innovations that are yet to come that will only benefit us. It's not always a negative. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed all, it was like I was opening my, my mind more and more and more and more to new stuff. I am very creative too. So mm -hmm. uh, it really fit my uh, way of approaching engineering. Well, but yeah. And I like that you just said that because sometimes there's not an assimilation there between creativity and engineering, but it is extremely creative because you're, you're totally creating something brand new or innovating or making something better. You're always doing some type of creative work when you're working in engineering, you're putting things together, you're building developing, sketching. It depends. There are jobs in engineering that you don't have to be creative. Good point. So you, you can find your place. For example, a, a line engineer doesn't have to be that creative. Perfect. But you have to be uh, very accurate, very, mm. very uh, precise. So there are different ways. In uh, Engineering is basically a, a field in which you can do whatever you want. I like that. <laughs> you, you can, can cultivate because it. you can be very creative or you can be uh, not creative, but uh, very repet repetitive if that is what you like. And both of them are, are exactly as important uh, for uh, developing a product. Absolutely. I talk about this often, that there's so many different levels that go into innovating and innovating in particular around technology. You've got your designers, your engineers, you have your programmers, you have those that collect the data and analyze the data and give you back information. There's lots of different marketing. There's all different areas. Well, I in which people who, who are in the background and mm -hmm. without, without them, we can't function today. Exactly. Exactly. There's always a space. And if you find what you love, you can marry the technology or the technological component to it to make it work for whatever it is you love to do. Also, uh, your profession will change during the, uh, all your time. I, I started up designing computers with discrete chips. I ended up designing the chips. <laughs> uh, which had a lot of logic and uh, we had to change completely the way we were designing. The old design rules didn't apply anymore. And then I changed to, to be able to define a design and test strategy for uh, automotive, which is again a different uh, area. Mm -hmm. So uh, it you have to know what type of work you like because the exact work would change. As you, as you go to, to your profession. Yes. And you change yourself. You grow and you develop and you take the skills that you've learned and you apply them again and you grow in your skill set and then you apply it again and you may. That is a very important point. At the very beginning of my career, the first job I was given was uh, to write some documentation for a, for a computer that we bought. Uh, it wasn't yet uh, our computer, but we had to document a computer which was uh, bought from abroad. And uh, I hated it. And I went to my boss and I said, I am, I am going to do it if you really want me to do it, but I really I don't like it. And he told me, listen to me, you are going to thank me one day. God, did I ever thank him all <laughs> through my career? Because I knew how to document properly, how to, to mm -hmm. write a good documentation, which is easy to read and easy to apply. All through my, my career, I 
directed people to write good documentation mm-hmm. or I was writing it. And for all the articles that I wrote for, for the magazines, technical magazines and the presentation for conferences, they were all inspired by that first job, which I didn't want to do. Um, yes, just listen to what she just said. There's, I always believe there's a reason for everything. And when there's something, a challenge is put in front of you, thinking about, it's easy to say, oh, I can't do it. But there is always a reason why that challenge was put in front of you. And that is a skill, the technical writing. I, you know, we don't do as much of that in my, we do some of that in what I'm teaching. But more than, more so, I do comment code where I tell them to really, uh, elaborate inside their coding with regular English, what they are doing so that if they were to share that piece of software with somebody else, someone else could pick up that or open up that coding window and know exactly what you were working on. That's so important. Oh my God. I had Mm. to deal with software, which wasn't documented properly. And I had to rewrite it basically. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard as what I tell everybody. If you can tell them, then it makes it easy for some, or let's say you get the software, then you know what's going on and you can go in and work on it without having to, like you said, start all over again. Yeah, yeah. try to, there are typically, if you develop a program in a company, it gets added pieces by different people. Mm -hmm. And then if you design the original software and you come back a few years later, you have no idea. You forgot even what you did. So documenting software is extremely important. Yeah, I, yes, yes. We can just keep, we'll just put, we're going to keep saying that. Well, and whether it's software or not, documenting anything, being able to communicate well is helpful when you're working in teams, when you're working in computer science, when you're working in any career. And you mentioned that you have, your career has changed over time. So you've spent the bigger portion of your career working in, computer science and engineering and developing and innovating, but that's not what you're doing now. That has led into a different path for you over the past few years. Uh, yes, it was very interesting. I had a passion for uh, how the brain works. Mm-hmm. And I kept reading all the articles I could uh, get uh, hand my, my hands on. And that is the reason why I chose the topic of my uh, dissertation as a PhD uh, designing computers with bra- brain cell-like circuits. And then the uh, expert system was another uh, way how we think. Right. Basically, that's what is an expert system. And then I found out that uh, I had the capability to heal people. And uh, when I found out, uh, eventually, I also found out that for me, uh, working with brain injuries, including stroke and other um, birth injuries and so on, was very easy. And I was watching others, and for them, it was uh, nearly impossible or impossible to do it. But I didn't fully understand what I had in my hand, so to speak, until I had my own two brain injuries on the same day, which basically stopped my life in its tracks. And then I was looking for somebody like me to fix my brain. And I couldn't find anyone to do exactly what I was doing. So that, that was a kind of two by four, four to my head to wake me up that what I was doing was valuable. So I, I had a, you can imagine if two, I fell twice from standing uh, position on my back, nothing on my head, on cement, uh, really uh, produced a lot of damage. So it took me many years to recover, but um, at the lowest point, because you get desperate, because you are not functioning anymore, and you realize that you mm-hmm. you become from the main support of your family, you are uh, a dead weight. Uh, at that point, at lowest point, I uh, decided that I will find my way back, and I will also document everything that I did to help other people. So combine my knowledge as a healer and everything I learned on my own skin, so to speak, and help other people with brain injuries. So 
uh, at the point where I had my brain injury, I was working full-time as an engineer, very long hours. And then in order to relax, I was working in a medical practice as a resident healer, helping doctors diagnose complicated illnesses. I'm also medical intuitive and helping with my healing capabilities because that offered a completely different way of using my brain. And uh, I, after I had my injury, I couldn't do any more uh, my engineering work. Eventually, I had to, to close that chapter of my life. But people were coming to me with brain injuries. And I remember even when I was really badly injured, somebody came and begged me. And I ended up working on her. And I was so exhausted, I lied down next to her and I slept for hours. She was on the table and I was on the floor. Wow. Uh, but eventually I recovered with my methods and uh, I ended up writing the book. Uh, it's a heal your brain, reclaim your life, how to recover and thrive after a concussion. So when you fell, you fell twice. Was there a reason? Did you ever find out medically what happened or were you just exhausted or was No, there... it was some black ice. Uh, black ice is... Uh, the ice, which is for, uh, if you have, it was a very beautiful day, sunny day in uh, Detroit, where uh, greater Detroit, where I live. And uh, I, it was icy because it was February, very cold. So what happens when, when it's so sunny is the upper layer of the ice is melting. And then you can't see the ice right. anymore. And that's called right. black ice. So I stepped on black ice and I fell. And uh, because it happened that the practice where I work, my medical practice where I worked, I didn't want other, other people to have the same happening to them. I went and I bought with great difficulty with some salt to put on ice to melt the ice. And when I was putting down the salt, I fell the second time in spite of being very careful. Wow. And that caused the concussion. That caused very bad the concussion. I, I uh, actually, I was uh, uh, lost consciousness because I, I suddenly saw instead of a nice sunny uh, day, I saw a, a starry, the sky was beautiful stars, full of stars. And I heard my son's voice saying, mom, I don't know what I would do without you. And that brought me back. And uh, I decided I will fight my way back. It's an amazing story. I mean, and what you were able to accomplish from that, the book that talks about, in the book, are there exercises, research? In the book, what uh, basically, at the crux? Um, one of the things that happened to me because of the brain injury I uh, had front, among other areas of the brain, I had frontal brain injury. And when you have frontal brain injury, you don't have that filter to stop you from doing things. So if people tell you to, do, to go somewhere, you go. If you, they tell you to give them money, you would give them. If you, so I, was, uh, I listen to people in my desperation and I wanted to get well. So they were sending me one alternative practitioner to the next, to the next, to the next. And I spent a lot of money for nothing, no results. So mm. one of the things that is in the book, I, I give the list of different injuries, which is a long list. And how did I, what therapies helped me? So people who have brain injuries know the therapies which are really helpful. Uh, but the book starts before that. It uh, tells people how to be prepared for a brain injury, mm. uh, what tests to run on uh, children and uh, adults in order to have a, a set of tests which you can run in case of brain injury uh, so to help the doctor better diagnose your injury. What happens is most brain injuries don't appear on uh, MRI. 
And if they, you are seen too early by a doctor, they might not even uh, detect those cognitive tests. Mm -hmm. But if you have a set of cognitive tests already uh, filed away, you can, you can help the doctor have a better uh, diagnosis. And I explained the book, uh, in the book how it helps. The other thing that I uh, talk about is what to do if you have a brain injury. It's very important after a brain injury to limit what is called the secondary brain injury, which is a, a injury to the brain due to swelling. The brain mm -hmm. tends to mm -hmm. swell after it uh, has a uh, trauma. And that is what causes most of the problem. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is difficult to detect. You have to have the MRI at a certain time. And if you have a brain injury, the MRI is excruciating. It's very, very painful. So if you can, you want to avoid it. And also, uh, from my experience as a healer, I know that about 80% of brain injuries are never detected, either because people think, okay, uh, my son had a, a headache, he was kind of dizzy, didn't want to eat, but he slept it off. Mm. And uh, probably the brain swelling went down, but there is still bruising. And that can reappear years later as an unconnected uh, illness uh, with strange symptoms like uh, extensive uh, allergies, for example. And if you try to, to treat it as an allergy, it will never respond. You have to find a person like me to take out the old trauma in order for the brain to be able to function again. So it's very, very important immediately after the trauma to properly train, uh, treat the brain injury. And there are, uh, there are very few tools to detect actually the brain injury. Either because you, people don't go to the doctor to, to be detected or they go too early and it's not enough of uh, damage to be detectable. So, uh, or the, simply the test cannot detect them. They are not sensitive enough. Wow. I mean, I'm just nodding my head and I'm listening because I actually experienced that with my grandmother, my mama D, who I've talked about on the show, Dorothy Rose, who uh, my nonprofit is named in honor of. My mama D had an aneurysm um, and she came through that okay, but there was a swelling of the brain. And that swelling is what caused the stroke that ultimately caused her to be paralyzed on her left-hand side. But she was kept in a coma-like state for way too long. There was over-medicated. And, you know, it, she never really, she never recovered fully. You know why so they keep, uh, keep people in coma? Because one of the things that you do when you have a brain injury you try to reduce to the minimum the input to the brain. So the brain doesn't have to process anything. So it's uh, the lights, especially no strobe lights, um, uh, light food, no, uh, no noise. Um, and if you put somebody in a coma, basically you let the brain relax. But if you put a person too, uh, too long in coma, mm -hmm. uh, there is a danger because then uh, their system is too depressed. Plus, mm -hmm. an injured brain, when you give it medication, the medication tends to get stuck because the mm -hmm. pathways are injured, which is not known in medical practice. I found that uh, to be true. Yeah, I, uh, that's what I believe to be true that happened with Mama D was it was too long and she was too much, uh, too much anesthetic. Exactly. And yeah. we were lucky to have what we did. And she was an amazing woman and inspired me every day. She fought through so many, so many things in order to even have be back with us. But it she could have I think some of that could have been prevented in, in some capacity. Well, Susanna, this has been incredible. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, 
I have learned so much. Your history is so rich and so real, and there's so many wonderful pieces of, of advice and and that you've shared with us today. And the piece that I think is so incredible about the history of your career is that you have followed your passion, you have embraced learning and change, and follow that to continue to grow and develop and as personally and in your career. If our listeners would like to get in touch with you, which I know they're going to want to, how do they do that? What's the best F, uh, best way? And can you give us the title of your book? Uh, I have actually nine books. Nine books? Yes. Man, I didn't even know all that. <laughs> five titles. Uh, one of them is five books. Um, a series of five books. Uh, they are all available from Amazon. Okay. Uh, um, and they can get in touch with me through my website, which is healingbraininjury.com. Okay. And I'll put all of that in our follow-up notes, healingbraininjury.com. It's a, it's, there are two pointers to the website or my last name.com, stoica.com. Stoica.com. And I'll put a link to your books on Amazon. I can go and find all of those pretty easily. So I'll do all of that. The books are also on my website. Oh, beautiful. Okay. So they're also there too. Each of the books on my website. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It has been incredible getting to know you and learn from you. And I look forward to, to more conversations If you've enjoyed all that you have learned today, please reach out and let us know. You can reach us through the Voice America Network at Coding the Future or on any of the apps. I appreciate your time. If you'd like to know more about the work that I do in working with young girls in computer science is DottieRoseFoundation.org or more work about my work with educators and integrating computer science and technology into the classroom. That's at the.consulting.co. Thank you again, Susanna. Please leave us a review if you've loved what you've heard on the code uh, Coding the Future webpage on Voice America. And I look forward to seeing everybody next time when we get to talk to more tech experts. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for having me on your show. The world needs more women with tech skills. At the Dottie Rose Foundation, we encourage, support, and educate girls who have an interest in technology and want to learn how it can be used to enhance their learning and future careers. Our camps demonstrate that most future career paths will benefit from developing a wide range of increasingly important technology and software skills. We accomplish this through mastering computational thinking, boosting self-confidence, and creating new possibilities for each girl. Visit DottieRoseFoundation.org. Thank you so much for listening to Coding the Future. Please join your host, Dr. Sharon Jones, for another edition next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk then.